2: Another American killed in Ukraine.
3: The State Department uh, has confirmed uh, that uh, another American citizen has been killed uh, in the fighting in Ukraine.
2: The director of the Texas Department of Public Safety says the response in Uvalde was an abject failure.
4: The only thing stopped in the hallway of dedicated officers from in room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander.
2: The Senate releases the legislative text for their bipartisan gun bill. This is a direct infringement on due process liberty on Second Amendment liberty. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Wednesday, June 22nd. I'm Mike Scott. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland made an unannounced trip to Ukraine Tuesday, where he met the Ukrainian prosecutor general. The pair are discussing efforts by the U.S. and other countries to help Ukraine identify, apprehend, and prosecute those individuals involved in war crimes in Ukraine. Here's NBC's Allison Barber.
5: He said he came here in part to meet with counterparts to discuss how they would handle and investigate war crimes moving forward. We just got this uh, from the Department of Justice. They say that uh, among his comments as he was meeting with people along the Ukrainian-Polish border, he sat down with the Ukrainian prosecutor general. And said and announced this for the first time, the launch of a war crimes accountability team to centralize and strengthen the Justice Department's ongoing work to hold accountable those who have committed war crimes and other atrocities in Ukraine. He says that this initiative will uh, bring the department's leading experts in investigations involved with human rights abuses and war crimes and other atrocities and also provide technical assistance.
2: Meanwhile, the State Department confirms the death of Stephen Zabilsky, an American fighting in Ukraine, reportedly killed on May 15 in the southern region of the country. Zabilsky, 52, is the latest American national confirmed dead in Ukraine since the Russian invasion. He was killed in battle while engaging with Russian forces in a small southern village, according to an obituary in The Recorder, his local hometown newspaper. National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, John Kirby, confirms the death.
3: Don't know a whole lot, uh, but uh, but I think you saw the State Department uh, has confirmed uh, that uh, another American citizen has been killed uh, in the fighting in Ukraine, and uh, I'd point you to state for more details on that, obviously, um, at the outset. Uh, our hearts go out to the family, which uh, are um, clearly enduring uh, an incredible grief here. Um, again, we want to stress that this is not the place of the time for Americans to go to Ukraine. It is a war. And if you want to help the people of Ukraine, there's a whole lot of other better options to do that than going and putting yourself in harm's way in the middle of that war.
2: Kirby goes on to say that a major problem the U.S. and the world now faces is food being used as a tool of war by Russia?
3: We've talked about this before. President Putin is, no kidding, weaponizing food. Let's, let's just call it what it is. He's weaponizing food. He's got an essential blockade there in the Black Sea so that nothing can lead by sea. And that's, of course, how Ukraine has historically gotten its grain to markets. And so the president's working with the leaders around the world to see if there's other overland ways we can do that. Uh, and he's exploring a range of options. He's keeping an open mind about how that would look. Um, and um, and there's lots of other of our partners, particularly in Europe, who also want to see that done. So, so there's a lot of work being done here. Uh, but, uh, but as I said, I think the other day, last week, you know, we know time is not on our side. I mean, this grain is a perishable commodity, so we want to get it out as fast as we can.
2: Brandon Weikert is a geopolitical analyst who runs the Weikert Report, World News Done Right, and a contributor to American greatness. He joined the Salem Radio Network to discuss what concerns him the most in the next stage of the war in Ukraine.
6: Adam Kinzinger uh, wrote an authorization to use military force, and he's trying to get it pushed through Congress. Uh, He says it's just a preemptive move in case Biden, quote, needs it. Um, But it's basically it says that the American president will be given carte blanche to use force in the event of uh, uh, WMDs being deployed by Russia in Ukraine. And the only reason that Russia is going to deploy such weapons is if they appear to be at risk of or threatened by uh, Ukraine reclaiming eastern Ukraine, which is the enclave that Russia has held on to since 2014.
2: Weikert says it is his opinion that Russia will use weapons of mass destruction to hold on to eastern Ukraine.
6: And it looks like this is what we are going to be trying to let the Ukrainian military do is fight to push Russia completely from Ukraine, which I get, you know, we want, we want them to have independence in the whole country, but um, the the Russians have drawn a thick red line. And I think if we really cross it um, or help the Ukrainians to cross it, um, it's going to get, it's going to get a lot nastier than it has been. And the Russians will resort to any and all force to keep their hands on at least that small part of the country. And um, so that is my big fear.
2: Weikert thinks that Ukrainian forces are overreaching and trying to retake the eastern part of that country.
6: We were not anticipating, I don't think the Biden team is anticipating the effectiveness of the Ukrainian resistance, particularly in the fight for Kyiv, uh, as well as the fact that the Russians would so badly miscalculate Uh, it's one thing to to, to lay claim to eastern Ukraine and maybe try to push into southern Ukraine, Um, but for Russia to have tried to take central Ukraine Ukraine key uh, was the bridge too far. Um, And so that sort of gave a lot of momentum that otherwise would not have been there to the Ukrainians, which is why now the Ukrainians have gone on the offensive. And I think they're overreaching, though. It's very similar to uh, the American revolutionaries trying to invade Canada, Uh, during the revolution. Uh, It was a bridge too far, and I think trying to reclaim eastern Ukraine from Russia is a bridge too far, and if we're not careful, that's going to be the spark that lights a nuclear war.
2: Weikert says the president, Joe Biden, needs to tell Russia and Ukraine to sit down at the table and end the war.
6: The only exit is that he uses the, the power we have over Ukraine with the weapons and intelligence. And he he uses the power of the sanctions and he calls up Moscow and Kiev and says, hey, look, we're done with the war. You guys need to sit down at a big, beautiful table, and you need to come to an agreement that resets the borders to what they were before the invasion of February 24th. That is the only way forward, but he won't do it because if he does that, then he looks weak, and then he basically – people are going to be going, well, what the heck was this whole thing for? And the Ukrainians are going to fight him and try to make him look bad if he does that. But he needs to be a man, and he needs to be the American president, and he needs to actually do this.
2: Israel's weakened coalition government announced that it would dissolve parliament and call for new elections, setting the stage for the possible return to power of former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or another period of prolonged political gridlock. The election will be Israel's fifth in three years and will put the polarizing Netanyahu, who has been the opposition leader for the last year, back at the center of the political universe. Lawyer Leon Amiras says he's disappointed. It's the first time in the history of Israel that you have a good government with Arabs, with religious, non-religious, working, and because of this sort of politics nowadays, we have to go to put more money in the elections instead of work, instead of go on building this country. Amiras says he does not believe that Benjamin Netanyahu would succeed, in any leadership attempt. There's no such a
7: thing uh, to have uh, Netanyahu again, I think. But I don't know, you know, politics.
2: Documents now show that armed police officers stood in a Uvalde Elementary School hallway with at least one ballistic shield within 19 minutes of the gunman arriving at the school where he killed 21 people, 19 of them children. The report intensifies the questions over why police didn't act sooner to stop the May 24 slaughter in the Robb Elementary School classroom. Colonel Stephen McGraw is director of the Texas Department of Public Safety and told a Texas Senate special committee that there is evidence that the response at Uvalde was an abject failure.
4: There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine Massacre. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there were a sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 In 112 was the on-scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. The officers had weapons, the children had none. The officers had body armor, the children had none. The officers had training, the subject had none. One hour, 14 minutes and 8 seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. McCraw went on to
2: suggest that the decisions of the on-scene commander, Uvalde School District Police Chief Pedro Pete Arredondo, were a waste of time. And while
4: they waited, the on-scene commander waited for radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. The post-call of mind doctrine is clear and compelling and unambiguous. Stop the killing, stop the dying.
2: These criticisms come more than a month after a gunman with a sport rifle entered two adjacent classrooms. The gunman remained inside the classrooms, even as children inside called 911 and pleaded for help until law enforcement finally breached the rooms and killed him at 12.50 p.m. That, according to a timeline from the Texas Department of Public Safety. Meanwhile, Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin accused the Texas Department of Public Safety of releasing contradictory information, perpetrating, quote, false leaks, end quote, and having its own agenda in the aftermath of the Robb Elementary School shooting. The Senate took the first procedural step Tuesday to move forward on a highly anticipated bipartisan gun safety bill, making it likely that a final passage of that bill will be seen by the end of the week. Senators advanced the legislation in a 64 to 34 vote, roughly two hours after a bipartisan working group released the bill text. Fourteen Republicans joined all 50 Democrats in backing the bill. Reporter Scott McFarland explains what's inside the bill.
1: It's the biggest gun reform proposal in three decades. It has what previous proposals have lacked, a pathway to the elusive but necessary 60 votes in the Senate. Democrats need 10 Republicans, and so far, these 10 Republicans have been part of the talks and have indicated some preliminary support. Let me show you the two lead negotiators. Texas Republican John Cornyn, who represents Uvalde, Connecticut. Democrat Chris Murphy, who represents Newtown. Let me show you three of the big provisions that were part of the talks as we read through the bill text tonight. Enhanced background checks for those under 21. Expanded red flag laws through which courts can order
2: guns seized from people deemed dangerous. McFarland discusses what the boyfriend loophole is and how it falls short of what many gun control advocates want And closing the boyfriend loophole. It's been a point of contention, prohibiting partners
1: who've committed domestic violence but live outside the victim's home from buying a gun. Gun control advocates have pointed to this stat. 70 women shot and killed by an intimate partner each month as part of their argument for closing the boyfriend loophole. Two more provisions, priorities for Republicans. Mental health programs, expanding them, that's in the bill text. And school security upgrades. This is less than some gun control advocates wanted. They were calling for assault weapon bans. But, Nora, timings of the essence. The Senate goes on its recess next month, and bills often derail when they're gone.
8: And we are just learning that the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, signaling his support for this bill.
2: Big endorsement. Republicans had initially raised concerns about the importance of restoring gun rights to people with misdemeanor convictions. Those issues were resolved by the time lawmakers released the bill text. However, not all Republicans are on board with the measure. Some critics, like Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, say that the red flag law provision may violate constitutional rights.
8: Well, it makes no sense, and you're absolutely right. This is a direct infringement on due process liberty, on Second Amendment liberty. Um, and frankly, what they are proposed this package, this, this framework or whatever it is, even if all that stuff would pass, it wouldn't have done anything to stop the tragedies that we've seen in Buffalo or or, or Uvalde. Um, <clears throat> so, not only does it not help, not not only does it does it infringe on people's liberties, it wouldn't have helped the situation that that the tragic situations that took place in in, in those uh, those communities.
2: Jordan went on to say he was surprised to see Republicans signing on to this bill.
8: We're used to to Democrats. Uh, uh, not adhering to due process, as you point out, we saw it in the first impeachment hearing. President Trump was denied due process. They had the hearings in the ba- uh, the bunker in the basement of the of the Capitol. Uh, we weren't allowed to call in our witnesses, but That's and right. then, then during the hearings, we weren't allowed to bring in our hearings. The president wasn't allowed to have his attorney in those in those depositions, like I had been in the, the case in a, all all the time before. And then, of course, we're seeing lack like, of due process with this January sixth committee. Republicans aren't even allowed on the committee, so there's no opportunity. to to see the evidence or present a case, uh, you only get one side of the story. That is what's going to happen now with this, this red flag law because, like I said in my remarks on the floor, someone doesn't like you, they file a complaint, and within 24 hours there's a hearing that you're not allowed to be at.
2: Salem Radio host Mike Gallagher echoed the Ohio representative's concerns.
8: Here's what a red flag law
0: does. Red flag laws strip American citizens of their constitutional rights. And no Republican should come near that. Shame on those 10 Republicans. Shame on Dan Crenshaw. I'm not going to engage in ad hominem name-calling with him. He doesn't deserve that. But he deserves to hear from his constituents who don't want him to support red flag, red flag laws. Uh, hello, 911? I've got a neighbor I don't like. They took my son's wiffle ball into the yard and wouldn't give it back. I think they're grumpy. I think they're a risk. I think that they have guns. I think that they're a danger. Oh, good. Go, go take their guns. Red flag law.
2: Once passed, the House is expected to take it up swiftly and send it to President Biden's desk. GOP representatives Jim Jordan and Rodney Davis are asking Capitol Police for more information after staffers from the Late Show with Stephen Colbert were arrested at that complex last week. Daybreak Insider's Capitol Hill reporter Bernie Bennett is covering this story.
9: In a letter sent on Monday, the lawmakers told Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger that the seven individuals on Colbert's crew were part of a group that was informed by Capitol Police to leave the building on Thursday. The lawmakers noted that the seven-member team gained access back to the Capitol building with the help of Democrats Adam Schiff and Jake Achencloss, adding that it was unclear if the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol attack had involvement with Colbert's team plan in the Capitol. Bernie Bennett in Washington.
2: More primaries were held Tuesday evening, this time in Virginia and the District of Columbia, plus runoff elections in Georgia and Alabama.
8: Alabama Republicans and former President Trump are waiting tonight to see who wins their U.S. Senate nomination. Congressman Mo Brooks faces Katie Britt in a runoff. Mr. Trump initially endorsed Brooks and then switched his support to Britt. There were also primaries and runoffs today in Arkansas, Georgia, and Virginia.
2: In Alabama, the GOP Senate primary runoff between Trump-backed Katie Britt and Representative Mo Brooks ended up in the newcomer, Britt, ousting the one-time Trump confidant, Brooks. Meanwhile in Georgia, B. Wynn is projected to win the Democrat primary for Georgia's Secretary of State, while Mike Collins and Rich McCormick are projected to win their districts, beating both opposing Trump-backed candidates. The Daybreak Insider podcast will continue to follow more updates from Tuesday's primaries in tomorrow's podcast. According to longtime Economy Watcher and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, the U.S. unemployment rate must rise before Americans can see any relief from inflation. Put in starker terms, the U.S. would have to endure a second recession in three years, and as many as 10 million people may have to lose their jobs. Summer says that the Fed's belief that they will get to their target rate of 2% inflation with unemployment numbers as they are isn't realistic.
7: I still think that the Fed and most market participants are underestimating the gravity of our situation. Uh, the Fed moved its forecast by an epic amount, both up on inflation and down on uh, the economy. But their current view that they're gonna get to two and a half percent inflation or below with unemployment just above uh, four strikes me as a optimistic tail outcome, not
2: a central tendency uh, in a forecast. Summers warns that stagflation will most likely hit the U.S. economy.
7: I think a better judgment is that there's no reduction to uh, normality without a significant increase in unemployment of perhaps two percentage points uh, or more at some point uh, down the road. And that's why I think there's a significant chance that we're going to find ourselves in a stagflationary situation where inflation comes down, but not all the way to uh, desired uh, levels. And the economy is much weaker than anything that's contemplated in the Fed's forecast.
2: U.S. inflation is sitting roughly at 8.6 percent year over year the highest point in 40 years, and shows no signs of slowing down. Summers argues the U.S. must sustain a jobless rate of more than 5% for five years, in his opinion, if inflation is to drop. Potomac Wealth Advisors founder and president Mark Avalone joined Fox News to discuss the inflation forecast and how the energy crisis is at the heart of what's driving inflation
5: well the slowdown is real and it's happening it's not showing up in all the data but it will i talk to realtors i'm looking at turn days in real estate market commercial property how it is here in the washington dc area and there are signs of a slowdown but i think the fed doesn't control all of the economy so they may have to go heavier on rates because of the problems we're having with oil. Oil inflation is driving this. So the Fed is fighting the entire inflation problem with only half of the tools. So it can only control the interest rate sensitive housing and autos, and that hopes to bring down prices across the board when energy is raising prices across the board. So what we really need is not only an aggressive Fed, but we need an effective energy policy And short of that, inflation is not going to be a tool that just the Fed can tame. They need help elsewhere. I'm not sure they're going to get it. And that's why it might linger.
2: Sales of previously occupied U.S. homes slowed for the fourth consecutive month as climbing mortgage rates and record high prices discouraged house hunters. Existing home sales fell 3.4 percent last month from April, to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of $5.41 million, according to the National Association of Realtors. Daybreak Insider's Mike Hempen takes a look inside the new housing numbers. Existing home sales
0: dropped 3.4% in May compared to April, as increasing mortgage rates and record high prices discouraged house hunters. The National Association of Realtors says sales last month were down 8.6% from May of last year. But even as home sales slowed, home prices kept increasing. The national median price jumped nearly 15% in May from a year earlier to $407,600. An all-time high.
2: I'm Mike Hempin. And finally, do you have a taste for adventure? Do you dislike snakes? Well, there's good news for you. Governor Ron DeSantis announced registration for Florida's twenty twenty-two Python challenge at a news conference in the Everglades. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Last year, participants of the Python Challenge removed 232 pythons from the wetlands. In 2020, they caught 80. DeSantis said about 16,000 pythons have been caught in modern recorded history with 8,000 of those captured under his term as governor. DeSantis says pythons are wreaking havoc on the delicate ecosystem
9: of the Florida Everglades. The Everglades, of course, is a diverse ecosystem, and we are protecting this ecosystem in a variety of different ways. And one of the things that we have to do is look at the toll that these invasive Burmese pythons have on the Everglades. It's just unbelievable what they will ravage uh, when they're there. They're not native here. You know, how it got in here, I mean, there's a long history of that. Uh, But the reality is um, they can exact serious destruction on the overall ecosystem. In his announcement
2: for the 2022 Python Challenge, DeSantis says that the event attracts people from around the world.
9: We're also proud of our being here for our announcement here today and this is something that will generate, has generated interest not just throughout southern Florida, not just throughout the state of Florida. It generates interest all over the United States and even in other places around the world, and that is our annual Python challenge. And so today I'm announcing that registration is now open for the 2022 Florida Python challenge, and that challenge will run from August 5th through August 14th, uh, and it'll be hosted by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission and the South Florida Water Management District.
2: But the event is not just about bagging invasive pythons. Participants can actually win
9: cash prizes. Python Challenge allows the public to engage direct, hands-on, in Everglades restoration. You can win prizes, and of course, uh, you will be doing a public service. And so we have both pros at this. You know, you look at some some uh, folks, I mean, we've got people like Alligator Ron that know their way around these parts. You, know, you have others that are just, that are doing it even for the first time. Uh, now, what you do have to do is you have to take an online training course in order to register for the competition. There will be cash prizes given for the longest python, as well as a prize for the most pythons caught and removed.